Hello everyone, how are we all doing? My name is Kyle Andrews and welcome to episode 13 of the Mental Wellballing Podcast. A podcast in which football's ongoing battle to address its difficulty in maintaining the mental health and well-being of all those involved in the professional game is explored. Thank you for joining me for what is a very special episode, both for me personally and for the stories and emotions you're about to hear. When I began this podcast, I had a small list of people I really wanted to speak to who are beyond those I was already connected to in some way. Not necessarily big names, not necessarily those who have spoken about mental health problems before, but those who have had a significant impact on me and my life. Rotherham United midfielder Matt Crooks was top of that list. In addition to struggling with mental health problems throughout most of my life, I also suffer from epilepsy. Thankfully, I'm now over a year without a seizure, but between my first in February 2014 until December 2019, I was having them almost monthly. It's taken a great deal of my life away from me, restricting me both physically and mentally. It has made me feel worthless, made my life seem hopeless. I cannot tell you how difficult it is to live your life in fear that the next moment will be empty, that the moment thereafter will be one of confusion and pain as you regain consciousness, that you feel totally excluded from life as a result. I've looked for sources of support throughout those times where I've suffered the very worst of epilepsy's effects. People who have achieved in their life despite living with it. I've looked at footballers as someone whose life is dominated by the game naturally would. I found Matt Crooks. His successes in his career were also mine. Not because I wanted to be a footballer, just that here's someone making a success of themselves. Why can't I be a success too? To speak to Matt, to thank him for that, was wonderful enough. To speak in greater deal about epilepsy was a wonderful pleasure. We also speak of the terrible passing of his best friend last year, fellow footballer Jordan Sinnott. But in particular, we look at the incredible reaction he's helped to oversee following it. The Shirts for Sinnott campaign is something that you can't have missed if you spent any time on social media, and the Foundation Trust has been set up in his name since. Finally, there's also time to talk about football and mental health more directly. The focus on mental health at his current club, Rotherham United, is much greater than many others. I'll stop talking now and let you listen to our conversation. It's truly wonderful. Um, I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. I'm really pleased to be joined by my guest this week, Matt Crooks. Matt, how are you doing? I'm good, thank you. Yourself? I'm really good, thanks. I'm really pleased to be speaking to you. Uh, I've been wanting to speak to you for quite a while for this, and that reason for that will be come clear as, as we go along. Um, but I'm going to start off this interview, as I do with every interview that I do for this podcast, with a question that, that trips a few people up. There aren't any wrong answers. It's quite an interesting one, and just nice to have your kind of uh, thoughts and philosophy on it. So uh, what does the phrase mental health mean to you? Um, I think until recently, I'd probably not paid too much attention to it. I'd kind of had the attitude of tough it out. I guess I've always had that kind of mentality myself. and I'm not, I'm not an open book personality-wise, so I've kind of just kept myself to myself. But obviously experiencing different things in life, um, hitting you in different ways, it's kind of opened my eyes a little bit. It's just as positive it's just as important as your physical health, uh, probably more important. And I think, obviously, you can't you can't see it. So sometimes you can't even see it yourself. Taking it back for 12 months, Mrs. Baker sitting me down just saying, look, I'm losing you. And to me, that was like the biggest shock because I felt like I was being fine. But then now looking back on myself then, I realised what, what she meant and, and where she was coming from. And then even family members, um, after speaking about it a bit more in the last 12 months, speaking to my dad, my dad who's deaf and he lives on his own. Obviously, we've locked down on his own 24 hours a day. No one really to speak to. Um, I spoke to him about it and he just he just said that he, he was finding it hard. 
as you can imagine, with no one to speak to, you can't hear anything. It's pretty lonely. So in the last four months or so, I reckon I've learned a lot about myself, uh, my family and and the mental health side that comes with it. Um, but it's a, it's a big a big thing and, and one that needs to be spoken about. It does seem in your case, it's uh, it's not a simple thing, but it, in relative terms, it is simple in the fact that just having conversations has, has opened your mind to it a little bit more. Yeah, definitely. Like I said before, uh, in the past, I probably I'd just keep it to myself. It's just the kind of person I am. Uh, and maybe slowly but surely, I'm, I'm getting better at it. I'm not, definitely not perfect and I'm definitely still learning, but um, slowly, hopefully, I can... I can gauge my understanding and, and try and help others as well along the way. I don't think anyone's perfect. So <laughs> I talk about this <laughs> weekly and I'm not perfect at understanding the whole time and worry about that. Um, yeah. so, so from that, I can sort of take it then that you didn't really pay much attention to understanding your mental health or understanding how you were feeling emotionally uh, when you were growing up as an academy footballer. It was a, a big focus on just progressing as a footballer and, and not a lot of attention put on anything else. Is that fair to say? Yeah, uh... Definitely. I think it was just football. Um, even away from being at academy, it was just football all the time for me. I didn't really think about anything else. It was even my, my school work kind of took a, a side path towards what I've just wanted, which was football. Obviously, I had my friends around me, but even that towards the end was kind of put to the side just to just to concentrate on football. So, yeah, in, in the process that I was in, there was never any real talk of the mental side of football or dropping out of football or anything like that it was it was pretty much just 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 football so if you if you'd got to to 18 and had it been offered a professional contract do you think you would have been prepared for that well i mean obviously once if that did happen there's there's an expectation yeah. that you're going to be hit hard immediately but in a sort of the, the shorter short to long term there's this period after that uh, would it have been tough for you to bounce back from that i don't know sometimes it would have been but the setbacks that i've had even through my time as, as a as a footballer, even going back to when I was 14 when I got released, I always seemed to bounce back quite well. So it's hard to say, really. Obviously, it hit me hard. I remember crying my eyes out when I got released at 14 by Man United, the team that I'd supported all my life and all my family supported. And I remember feeling like I'd let everyone down. And uh, it's like a, it was a big weight that I had to carry on my, on my shoulders, I guess, looking back, trying to, trying to do myself proud, but at the same time, I know my dad was rooting for me and my granddad and my grandma and everyone else. So um, I remember just being in tears and they let me train till the end of the year and then I ended up going to Huddersfield. And I remember sitting down with my dad and he was just, just said, listen, you can either let it affect you and and you'll probably just end up going to school and, and having a normal life or uh, you can try and still have this football life that you're really craving and really wanting and you have to prove people wrong so that's kind of the path that went down and had this motivation to prove people wrong. Do you think though at any time during that maybe that the the balance you had between committing yourself to being a footballer and dealing with other things looking after yourself understanding who you were because you know at that time sort of 14, 15, 16 you are developing quite quickly as a human being you, you're yeah. understanding yourself a little bit more do you think you had the, the balance at any point in that time was a little bit unhealthily weighted towards being a footballer? Uh, definitely looking back um, I kind of thought about it before I came on and um, I remember my grandma used to say to my dad um, like I need to focus on his school when I was the year before I got released from Man United they tried to make me move to Manchester to go to a school in Ashton and basically what it was is um, they could get the players out of the school whenever they wanted to train more often uh, like during school time 
and my grandma was having none of it. Obviously, I really wanted to go. My dad really wanted me to go, but my grandma was like, no, he needs to focus on his school. So she's always kind of kept me to, to my school work and my academics and stuff. And to be fair to her, she was probably the only one out of all of us that kind of, kind of did that for me. Um, I was always, like I said before, I was always just devoted to football and wanted that to succeed. I remember being in year eight, I'll never forget it. It was like another piece of motivation for me, but my form tutor, Mr. Parsons, in year eight, um, pulled me to one side um, in like, like before school started. Uh, and he, was, he had registration. He just said, look, I've been getting a few reports that you're not doing your homework. And he said, like, I know you want to be a footballer, but the very, very, very small percentage of footballers that make it. And I remember like being so annoyed and angry with him because I felt like he had no belief in me. I know he was trying to do the right thing. And looking back, I can see he was trying to do the right thing by giving me other options away from football. But I think my attitude at that time was just football and that, that is solely it. So I was just angry with him that he uh, didn't have the same belief that I, that I had. Um, uh, it's, it's interesting that because like, it's something that does come a lot up on this podcast, a lot of the conversations I have, is that the message that to young players in the academy, it you know, it ha- has to be put out there that, that there is a, a very small percentage of you are going to make it as professional and that sort mm. of realism doesn't need to be put out there. But when you do put it out there, it, it does motivate or have a way to straight people to think, well, you're you're not showing faith in me. You're not showing that, yeah. you, you know, you don't think I'm good enough. You're only telling me this because you don't think I'm good enough. And yeah. it, it sounds like for you kind of the, the fear that you might not make it actually motivated you to make it yeah definitely I, I, I've it's living truth now I still remember that conversation <laughs> I can remember just standing there thinking oh, I'm gonna prove you <laughs> I um, loved it but then I, they, again uh, I guess then the question is if you were speaking to uh, a young player at the same age um, that you're at now um, what would your advice be to them would it be to go to do what you've done and follow that route and put all your your energy into football or put some more time into to other other in, aspects of your life, put some more time into thinking about how you're feeling and, and those sort of elements? Yeah, yeah, I think you've got to strike a balance. I think obviously you've got to be devoted to your football. It's If you do want to become a professional footballer, there's no denying that it's time and hard work and blood, sweat and tears and you have to give yourself the opportunity, you have to do that. At the same time, you've got to focus on yourself, like you say, your mental, your mental health even as a a young lad or a young girl and really work on both sides of it because if you're mentally not in the right space then you're, you're fighting a losing battle from, from the get-go. Yeah, it's, a, it's a fine balance that I think academies and football in general and young footballers are still working to try and find. Um, but yeah. moving on, um, so this is really uh, the the main reason that I uh, wanted to have, on the, have you on the podcast. Um, I'll uh, probably explain a little bit before introduction but I'll just uh, explain a little bit more now. So like myself, Matt uh, suffers from epilepsy. We've, uh, I understand, got quite a similar type of epilepsy. Um, both started when we were teenagers, late late teens, and, and when we had it, we both didn't really know what was going on. Um, so, Matt, I just wanted to go back first of all to the, your very first seizure. Um, can you sort of recall what happened? Um, what your what your reaction was to it um, in, in terms of your mental reaction to it? What was going on in your mind at that time? So I was a first year pro, 18 years old at Huddersfield, uh, and I'd just been on a night out with my friends, um, got in quite late, I just can't remember the time, but it'd been late on, and then um, just woke up early like I always do, it was 8, 9 o'clock in the morning, 
I had probably four or five hours of sleep maybe and the next thing I remember is just waking up in the hospital. I was, luckily enough, I was with my two friends. Obviously, they didn't have a scoop what was going on. <laughs> my best mate, Max, he said that, because um, he, he lived in like a, it was kind of hotel-style kind of dorm rooms and uh, he was just sprinting down the corridors asking for help. He said he was, he was the most petrified he's ever been. Um, but yeah, I remember waking up in the hospital and just being confused and a bit dazed as to where I was and what was going on. So yeah, it was a, it was a weird one. I kind of I was a bit blasé about it at first because I didn't really comprehend what happened. I remember going to treat that was on the Sunday morning and we had a under twenty ones game on the Tuesday. So I turned up for training normals on Monday and just on the off chance happened to tell the physio, by the way, I had a, a fit on Sunday morning. And then that's when it kind of escalated into this <laughs> bigger, more uh, complicated process that I found myself in. How quickly then did it sort of uh, hit you that, okay, I'm, I'm suffering from a condition here that, that might have a negative impact on my chance of becoming a professional footballer? Yeah, well, um, at first you said people can just suffer from individual seizures. Um, so they said, if you have another, then we'll kind of sit down and talk about it. Obviously, that those more seizures did come. Um, I must have had two or three, three, four more. And that's when I kind of thought, wow, something's going on here. So when... Luckily for me, being a professional footballer, even at 18, I kind of got to see the best people quickly. And that's probably one of the biggest things I'm thankful for because they set me off on all the EEGs, ECGs, all the scans and stuff that people in a normal job or in a normal college can't, don't have the access to. So I was kind of sorted within the week and seeing the best neurologist in Manchester within within the week. And um, he kind of... Just explained to me what, what what it was, the epilepsy, and I didn't know what it was. I didn't know what was going on. I mean, I still don't really understand it now. Um, Thank. Some of the stuff that goes, yeah. Um, but we then started on medication, which was I can't pronounce the scientific name, but it's Kepra, more commonly known. Uh, Kepra. We started at two hundred and fifty grams twice a day, and that didn't work. Kepra is the best one for athletes, supposedly. Um, the neurologist said. Um, so yeah, I started on 250 twice a day. That didn't work. I had a couple more. Then I went on to 500 and we thought that was going to be the right dosage because it was about six six months maybe without without a seizure. And I thought I kind of cracked it. And then I remember being at Huddersfield's training ground in the gym. I had Jonathan Hogg next to me because <laughs> whenever I see him now, he always mentions it. And someone else to the other side. And I, I just took another seizure there. In, in the gym, luckily I wasn't pushing any, any weights. I was just stretching. Um, so that's a good excuse for me not to do any weights um, <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah that so that was another setback that kind of put me back again and then uh, finally got to a thousand a thousand twice a day and since then I've, I've been good apart from the one time where I was clever enough to not take any tablets for two for two two slots and the next morning I got a nice surprise uh, well, I get a taxi driver and I surprise. I was pulling to training at uh, Murrayfield uh, in Rangers and um, literally just as I was pulling in, it's like a roundabout, the taxi driver just bolted into the training ground and I got a free taxi ride out of it. So <laughs> it's got it's got its bonuses. But, um, but yeah, it's just, that was that was silly for me. It was frustrating because obviously it's another, it's another two days of, being absolutely knackered and so it's another year of not being able to drive so it's good now that I've got my missus living with me because she's on me every every single day to take my medication otherwise 
she uh, she loses a plot. So, uh, well, first of all, it's good to hear that you've gone a significant amount of time without having one. Um, yeah. And as for for myself, I'm same situation now where I've gone uh, over a year without having one, and it's such a uh, a weight off your shoulders and such a relief yeah. just to you know. Especially just hitting that year landmark, it's you know, of course, you get the thing where you're able to drive again, that is the, the, the practical benefit. But I think the yeah. psychological benefit of where I've gone a whole year about having one, it, it makes yeah. me feel like a completely different person. Yeah. Um, but for me, with my seizures and with epilepsy in general, as bad as the seizures were, and you know, I've, I've done myself harm and, and from having them and stuff, and mm-hmm. um, I mean, it, it's not nice that people that I love and look after me have seen me having them. The, the yeah. biggest thing for me with them was the the, the fear factor was the, the mental impact they had on me was the fact that <laughs> like I could go out tomorrow and be walking next to a road and have a seizure and fall into a car or something like that. It was always a, yeah. the the fear thing. I, I just sort of lost trust in my, my body and I, I had a mental health problems going on at the time and it all just sort of brewed together yeah. into this, this situation where like leaving the house and just doing anything, there was always a, a, a real fear and a real anxiety to it. Now, obviously, mm-hmm. there's a situation of yours is, is, is slightly different in that you have the support of football clubs around you. And as you said, you've got access to, to, yeah. to other areas of support. But it, just in, in terms of, of thinking more widely, how did your epilepsy affect you mentally? I think I was quite lucky in the fact that I think it's my personality. I'm quite laid back. So I probably didn't, at first didn't take it as seriously as, seriously as I should have. And I'd get caught out by obviously having more seizures so it was only to my own de- detriment really but I found myself I think your life changes when you have kids and I've got a two-year-old now and one due any minute and since then I definitely have become more fearful sometimes I'll I think to myself in the car have I taken my medication this morning and then if I can't remember I'll be driving the whole way to training thinking have I taken it have I taken it if I haven't taken it what happens if I take a seizure now and, and crash or so these thoughts that I'd never had previously before having kids are now very more, ever more prominent than they ever were before. So there is definite, definite like mental aspects to it that I never even realised that, that come about from it. But um, I try to put them to one side and just try and live my everyday life like I usually would. I, I guess it's fair to say then that with that sort of um, more laid back attitude that you had when you were younger, it didn't really have any effect on 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 your football, on your your desire and your ambitions to be a footballer. You know, it didn't interrupt apart from the sort of the the actual physical seizures themselves. It didn't really interrupt your your flow of becoming a footballer. No, I think like I said before, I think with because I was so lucky to have that support straight away, I had no time to kind of worry because it was so instant. The help that I was getting and the support I was getting, and I don't really ever recall a time of me thinking. I'm not going to be a footballer because of this. It was kind of just, right, we're going to get it sorted. And I was lucky enough to get it sorted. I mean, people aren't as lucky as me to to be in the position that I find myself with the medication settling me right down. So I am very fortunate for that. Um, but like I said, I am fortunate as well for the support that I've got for this field and the neurologists at Leeds and Manchester, etc. So every, every club that I've been at, to be fair, has been good as gold with me. That was something I was going to ask, ask actually. So it, it sounds like no one in football's really looked at you differently because you've got epilepsy. No, I've always been quite proud of the fact it's not something that I shy away from. I don't think it's something that I should be. Um, it's something that makes me unique, something different from, from others. And I, I kind of, although it's not a good thing, <laughs> it, it, it is something that 
if people want to talk about it, then I'm, then I'm happy to. I will I will speak about it. And, and I don't think anyone should be ashamed of having epilepsy. It's not something we can control as such. It's just one of those things that we, we get and we have to live by. Yeah, I think no, I, I agree there in the way that, like, like we've kind of both said, is that when it happened, to begin, when the first seizures happened, we, yeah. we both didn't know what epilepsy was. No, so well, I just assumed it was the cinema stuff. Yeah, yeah. So like, I always thought it was just the flashing lights. Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. you know, you get the, yeah, you get the warnings on the, <laughs> the, the films and stuff that, yeah. you know, viewers well, might That's the first to... point when you, whenever you tell people. Yeah, yeah. Especially, especially the ones at football when you first <laughs> tell them, like, oh, so you can't go to the cinemas or you can't play a place. I'm like, no, it's not, it's not that. <laughs> Because that's like, well, like one of the rarest forms of it. Like the, the most common yeah. form is sort of the ones that we have where you develop it in your late teens that are sort of like yeah, yeah. And, But like, mm. I, I quite like having those conversations where people ask me questions because yeah. like I wouldn't have known if I was in their position, I wouldn't have known anything about it. It's not spoken yeah. about. It's not the, the, no. the notion of epilepsy. is like you said, it is this idea of flashing lights and stuff. Yeah, so yeah. I quite like you. Yeah, I think... I don't think I've really thought about it like, like that before, but yeah, I would say that I'm quite proud to to have it in a way and, and quite yeah. proud to be able to speak about it and like, yeah. not in a sort of like condescending way, but educate people about no. it. And yeah, definitely. About it and yeah. gave it a bit of exposure. It's, it's nice. Yeah I, think, that. yeah, I think as well with my, a lot of my family being deaf, I'm kind of used to having that something disability and inverted commas kind of being involved in my life. So Maybe that maybe that side has helped me with dealing with epilepsy as well, um, and being able to talk about it because that's another thing that I'm I'm proud of my parents being deaf, even though people may look upon it as as a disability to to other people, which it is. But at the same time, it's something that they can be proud of. So I think that's probably helped me as well in in my my outlook on it. Yeah, it's nice nice with all that with all disabilities and illness, whatever. Yeah. It's a nice attitude to yeah. have that you you know if you can look at it and say you know take the, the positive and take the pride out of it, then you're obviously going to be dealing with it a lot, a lot better. And it seems that you, yeah. you managed to be able to do that, which is, which is fantastic. Um, just sort of last sort of thing on the epilepsy front. Um, uh, I was, um, I was explaining to Matt before we started the conversation, I was doing my cooing then that he's been a real a sort of <laughs> inspiration for me because it's nice to be able to look at someone who's been successful um, while you're sort of struggling with epilepsy and going, oh, look, there's a professional footballer there that's got epilepsy. But, oh, he's a professional footballer, so he's, he's, had a success, he's living a successful life. So there's no reason why I can't, I mean, I can't be a professional footballer or I can't kick a ball straight, but there's no reason why I can't <laughs> achieve something with my life. And neither, neither can I. <laughs> well, 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 I'm not sure about that, but I'll give it for another day. Um, but um, when the, the, the series first started and you're a little bit confused about what was going on. Were there, there people that you looked up to for support in that in a similar sort of way, whether that be football or elsewhere? Was you, was you able to sort of um, find encouragement to, to from you know, others? Yeah, find encouragement from other people that showed that you could still be yeah. successful and it wouldn't, wouldn't hold you back? Yeah, well, I think I connected quite early on with Leon Leg pretty immediately, actually, because I've always said that I didn't panic when <laughs> when I first found out, but the first thing I did was kind of see if anyone else had it just to speak to. So I think I messaged him on Twitter and I still speak to him now every now and then, not not regularly, but just every now and then. Um, and um, yeah, I think he was someone that I could probably speak to and I've seen him playing football week in, week out, uh, a good a good level. And that probably gave me a little bit of inspiration, I guess, to to carry on and, and, and be believing what I was doing and that, the epilepsy, epilepsy wouldn't hold me back. Um, I think speaking to the neurologist as well, I know that he 
um, specific, specifically had worked with three or four Olympic athletes. So I kind of saw that and thought, well, if they're Olympic athletes, then hopefully I should have no problem. So I guess I could take off those two experiences and those two people that I spoke to that kind of gave me the, the confidence to, to go out and, and do my thing. I think yeah, it's, it's quite clear that you're both in the way that your, uh, your own sort of behaviour was and the people and support you had around you, that your mind was pretty well protected when you were going yeah. through the process of just sort of working out what epilepsy was and stuff, which is fantastic to hear. And it's also, as I sort of said at the start, really good that you're in a similar situation to me now where it's 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 a part of your life. It's something that's, you know, never going to go away necessarily, but it's something that you're dealing with and the seizures are hopefully for both of us a thing of the past. It's just, you know, something yeah. we can talk about and be kind of, kind of look back and laugh at a little bit, but, you know. <laughs> yes, yeah. Um, yeah. But just final sort of thing on that. Um, does it, I'm going to guess it does in the way you've been saying you've been proud about it and stuff, but does it give you a little bit of solace that, you know, despite it being a negative that you've experienced, does it give you sort of a little bit of solace that you can, as, you know, someone who is successful but has had epilepsy, be a source of solace to other people? Yeah, I guess so. I mean, it's weird to look at myself in that way. Um, I don't really view myself as a <laughs> inspiration to it. I'm just, I'm just Matt from, from Winsfield. <laughs> um, but um, no, I guess so. And if anyone, if anyone did ever reach out to me, um, then I'm always happy to talk about it. Um, obviously, everybody's situation is different, so I'm not there to judge or to to, to stand there and say, "Look, you're going to be fine," because who knows? And and everyone's like I said, everyone's epilepsy is different. But like I said, I'm, I'm happy to speak to them and, and listen. And even if they want me to just sit there and listen and not not speak back, then I'm I'm more than happy to do that. Yeah, sometimes it's just nice to have someone to someone that will hear it and will just respect what you say and understand it and know that they're understanding it is 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 a very beneficial thing to have. Um, yeah, the same the same thing with mental health as well. Um, but next topic I just wanted to move on to um, is quite a sensitive one, um, which is unfortunately um, last year that your your best friend John Sinnott passed away in, in quite unfortunate circumstances, which says not really need to go into. Um, mm-hmm. But I just wanted to, to start this off by just asking you to, to explain what your, your relationship with Jordan was like, because it sounds like it was quite a special one. Yeah, it was a massive part of my life um, for like the last 10, 11 years, since I met him at 14. We both kind of joined Huddersfield in pretty much the same week, Huddersfield Town, uh, when we were both 14. And I didn't really like him for the first couple of weeks because <laughs> I'd, just, I'd just come from Man United Academy and thought I was the bee's knees. And he was kind of always a chubby kid. And I remember arriving and thinking, he can't be training with us. And then he turned up on, and he was unbelievable. <laughs> I was like, so I've come from United and he's come from Geisley Juniors or whatever and he's showing me up left, right, centre. So I was a bit jealous for a couple of weeks but once I got to know him, <laughs> I, I, we really got on and just growing up together through football and then outside of football, going through our uh, scholarship together at Huddersfield and then getting co- professional contracts and making our debuts and going on holidays outside of football and just, just growing up as adults together and seeing our friends get married and stuff. So it, was, it started as just football at 14 years old and became a, well, he was my best mate at the, end, at the end of it all. So it was a special relationship, one which I won't be able to replicate again and one that's kind of left a hole in my life. But yeah, it's, it, I won't forget it. That's really, really lovely thing to say. and really nice to hear that, but obviously it's quite a, a sad thing to hear as well. And I don't think that, you know, there's there's any expectation that even now a year on, you should be dealing with it perfectly. But in the immediate aftermath, there's certainly no expectation that you shouldn't have some time to mourn and feel those sort of, that, that pain. But mm-hmm. you were quite 
proactive in, in responding to it and that you you did the, the the shirts for the Senate um campaign I mean there are times when you couldn't scroll down Twitter around that period without seeing some club or some person donating a donating a shirt to it and promoting it and celebrating his life where where did you find the energy to react to that in such a positive way and make a positive out of it and I mean how did it how did it make you how did it make you feel to see people getting on board with it I mean I guess it must have just made not necessarily dealing with the situation easier but being able to think about him his life as a celebration rather than mourn it uh, an easier thing to do yeah it, it almost became addictive seeing I was in charge of the Twitter feed and it was kind of like I needed it to, to kind of like get by I needed more shirts I need, needed like it wasn't ever enough I needed more I needed more and it was kind of a, probably doesn't sound right when you talk about mental health because it's not probably the right way to deal with things but it would make me forget forget about it so I wasn't focusing on what had actually happened. I was just focused on the shirts and I need more shirts. And that was kind of what I was doing. And But at the same time, of course, it was turning up to um, the Bradford Stadium and seeing all the shirts coming up and it was just kind of wow. And just hitting like a ton of bricks, like this is incredible, like what people have done and kind of shown their love for him. And it was, it just showed what, what a brilliant bloke he was, that the amount of people that put their time and effort into and doing such a simple shirt thing, but it meant meant the world to to a lot of us. And yeah, I guess those first few days, it was just just yeah, just get as many shirts as you can. <laughs> Please, someone give me a Senate twenty five shirt, and that's kind of what we did. Where, where did that idea come from? Um, so originally, the idea was to get his shirts from the clubs that he played for, and then we also got a Dakri Palace t-shirt in Magaluf because that was his our favourite place to, to have a drink in Magaluf so we got another one of them but then we got put in a WhatsApp group with all his family and stuff and there was a few of, the, a few of his friends and a few of the lads and a few of us play football so we just said oh we'll just try and get a few like who we play for and a few of our mates and then within a couple of hours it was oh look we've got the full 92 football league clubs and it was kind of let's get as many as we can let's create a Twitter page let's get it big on social media and it just exploded and it was just crazy and then you had teams in Thailand and uh, how was the other one Australia and just such far out reach that you, you couldn't believe it. and I think the ones that went the most was in the end were the community ones they were getting involved and to have over 900 different clubs and from all different sports and it was just incredible I guess it was just I, I guess is that you said it was addictive but it, I guess it wasn't just the, the the physical thing in seeing the shirts. It was the, 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 the emotional, mental thing of thinking, well, his life is being celebrated. He's, you know, this is a, a life that people treasured. I don't, you know, you were moving away gradually and slowly. It's acceptable to do that from the, the suffering and the pain of it towards just being able to reflect on him positively, reflect on the life that he had and see that other people were doing that as well and try and sort of, create positive emotions out of a very tough experience yeah definitely I think I think the whole even at his funeral it was there was no kind of like sad songs or it was all very there was uh, like a soul six seven soul singers and they were singing upbeat 80s tunes which was kind of perfect for him really it's what he'd wanted and it was it was like a big party and I remember speaking to Richie Barker when the assistant manager at um, Bonham and I said that I thought, I thought I wanted to to speak at his funeral and what he thought about it. And he did it for his brother who had passed away a couple of months before. And he said it was the hardest thing, but 
the proudest thing he'd ever done and I can only echo that. It was probably the proudest thing I'll ever do. It was think about it now, it was making me it was hard, but um yeah, I'm happy that I got, got to do it and it was a privilege to to be standing in front of a thousand people who really loved him and I was one of the chosen ones to speak. So um yeah, it was nice. Um, and something else that you, you've done in the um, the aftermath of, of what's gone on is you set up the uh, the Johnson at Foundation Trust. I just want to explain a little bit about that, um, what, it, what it's doing, what it hopes to achieve, uh, and really, yes. how, how, how you know uh, is that another thing that's making you feel proud of of, of what you, how you've responded to what's going on and another way of celebrating his life. Yeah, so quite quickly, I said to my to my girlfriend that we uh, I would start something, and a couple of people obviously said the same thing and. Before long, there was, um, I think it might be eight of us, eight of us um, that are, are on, on board with it now. And we thought about what what we should, what our mission should be and what we should exude, what, what, what our mission statement was. So we just wanted to, we thought his personality was such a big personality and he loved football. So, and he loved sport, not just football. So we want to better people's lives really through sport, especially children and young adults. And if you can make people smile through sport, through through Jordan's name and his foundation, then it it's what we want really. And yeah, I didn't want his name just to be lost in the history really of people that have passed away. I know, I know it sounds awful, but there's people that pass away every day, and obviously the families don't forget about them, but the wider public do. And I just couldn't stand that thought of happening to Jordan. He was so young, had so much more life and personality and happiness to give to the world and I kind of wanted to to still give him to the, give Jordan that even though he wasn't here so if we could do it through other people and make them smile and make them laugh like he did through his name then it'd mean the world to us all and, and feel like we're honouring him and his life so in an ideal world I'd want it to be as big as possible as big as his character was and I have dreams of it being a multi-million dollar charity at, at the end of it and helping people everywhere but for now we'll start small and give little grants out here and there and try and raise as much money as possible but no it's it, along with the shirts it's certainly helped me with trying to get through it and trying to remain positive and and smile myself and smile for him so no it's been it's been a massive massive thing I think I can echo everyone here and say what you're doing, what you what you've done and what you are doing is absolutely fantastic and you deserve a lot of credit for what you've done and how you've managed it um, I do just do just want to ask um, how, how do you feel you've you've given the experiences that you've gone through in the past and the experience you've gone through in the past year how, how do you think you've, you've changed as a person what I'm definitely you- more emotional now <laughs> I've been with my girlfriend six years and five of them she's never seen me cry I was never much of a crier and um, yeah that's changed a lot over <laughs> the past 12 months even um watching an Amazon Prime TV series in a minute called This Is Us and yeah, at least twice every series I'll end up in tears and it's I'm not I'm not the man I used to be I used to be made, made of stone and I've, I've crumbled but um, yeah I, I'm definitely more emotional which is perfectly fine um, yeah uh, what, what else what did I say I'd change I don't know it's hard self-evaluate yourself in uh on the spot i don't know i'd have to if you um give me some time and i'll take it <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll let you know but yeah that's a standout one definitely I'd become more emotional um 
Do you think your yeah, attitude towards this football or being a footballer has changed at all? Do you think as you maybe because you've become yeah. more emotional and you know understood yeah. a bit more about yourself that you've seen that maybe the importance of being a footballer isn't actually that important? Yeah, definitely. I used to come home and think about football. I used to go to obviously to train and think about football. I used to be at home, sat with my family and think about football. And now it's I want to be there with my family. I don't want to think about football. I want to be there in the moment and, and enjoy it and if I have a bad game then so be it I can't be perfect all the time I'm definitely not There's, there are more important things I still have that drive to succeed I still have that drive to win but when it come, comes to downtime it's, it, it is downtime it's time for, for me and my family that's, that's a big takeaway that I've, I've, I've taken from it Is it fair to say that you, you've gone from being a footballer called Matt Crooks to Matt Crooks who plays football? Yeah, definitely. Um, and I think with the charity as well, it's kind of given me something to to look forward to after football. I always had that worry in the back of my head of when my career finishes, who am I or what am I going to do? Because all I've ever thought about is football. And I guess, as sad as it is, what's happened, um, it's kind of given me a drive to do something else after after football. And I'll have a lot of free time to do all the things that I want to do to, to better the charity. So. I mean, obviously, as you're sort of saying, it's a very sad situation. It's not the situation that you want this to come out of, but at least you can take something away from it in that you feel like you've, you've well, it's quite clear that you feel like you've improved yourself as a person, that you've become more emotionally aware and that you can see a, a, a life beyond the, the bubble of football. Um, so I think it's, you know, obviously you've gone through a, a tough time, but at the same time, I'd say it's probably made you more mentally secure in a way because you do feel you can be more open. You feel that you can be more emotional don't have to, put up a front or anything like that yeah yeah definitely um, I, I used to hold stuff in a lot and I think with the situation that I found myself in it got to a stage where I couldn't do it anymore otherwise it was making me even worse so I kind of learned that, that you need to you need to speak to someone some, whether that be someone at home which it was my girlfriend or someone outside of football or outside of, outside of uh, your family life which I also did so that that was that was probably a big help for me as well. Uh, sort of stepping back into the world of football, have you found it? I think we we go back to the start. You you, you said when you were you were growing up, the focus was on football, and there wasn't a lot of attention on mental health. Have you seen that change over the past few years that people have been a bit more open about mental health in football? Uh, and are you yourself take only taking into account the last year, but years building up to it, where you feel like you can be a little bit more open in the football environment, or is there still kind of that little bit of fear that if I do speak up in the dressing room about something, I do tell a coach something that they're going to be, they're going to see it as a weakness and there's going to be repercussions. I think I'm lucky at where I'm at the minute at Rotherham. The gaff is very big, Paul Warren, on, on emotional intelligence, he calls it. And it's a big part of his management style. He wants all the players to know each other as well as possible. In pre-season, we all do a talk on what what our lives are and what we've gone through and who who drives us. And he doesn't want to just know you as a footballer, he wants to know you as a person as well. So at the club that I'm at at the minute, 100%, I'd be more than confident to speak to someone and know that I had no repercussions. Um, I did that recently with uh, Richie Barker, I think. <laughs> He's known as a nasty one out of the management crew, but... Um, we became um, we became quite close, obviously, with the different experiences that we were going through, and I felt like he was someone that I could lean on because I felt like he knew what I would be feeling. Obviously, people 
feel things different ways, but with the experiences that had happened that I felt it was someone who I could lean on and, and he was great with me. He helped me a lot in in those in those weeks and months after and I haven't thanked for, thanked him for it, but I will do when whenever the time is that we, we don't see each other again. So know that the club that I'm at now are, are brilliant and uh, like I say, they're very they're very good with the, the emotional side of football, which sometimes doesn't get speak spoken about as much. Other clubs I don't know you'd have to you'd have to ask them, but I can only speak highly of Rotherham United and, and how they provide that support for you. No, it's interesting because a lot of people I do speak to they say that like they wish they could be more open, but yeah, they're they're it's it's not like explicitly put out there that you can't be open. There isn't. It's not explicitly said that if you tell me you've got a mental health issue or there is a, a an emotional problem, it's going to affect your chances of selection. It, they, some like quite often the opposite is made very clear that you can be open. But all the mm. same, they sort of internalise this feeling that they've had all their life that if they show anything that could perceive to be a weakness, yeah. then it will mm-hmm. be exploited. So I think yeah. that as much as you're saying that it's testament to Rotherham that environment exists, I think it's testament to yourself as well that you can sort of overcome the overcome the internalised thing that footballers have where, you know, if I do show this emotional side of myself, it might negatively affect my chances of selection. I think it is a testament to yourself as well that you've, you don't think like that, that you feel you can be mm-hmm. open. So, yeah, give all the credit you want to Rotherham, but I think you've got to give some credit to yourself as well. I'll take that on board, yes. yes no, just, <laughs> I, don't, I, yeah, I don't know how to respond to that one. <laughs> no, no, yeah. sorry. I just not <laughs> Because, I mean, yeah. it, is, it is a tough... Um, it's the nature, it the is, nature of football. It's, it's tough environment yeah, to be open in. It, it is a business at the end of the day. It's um, a lot of the time you're not looked on as a person, you're just a product. And that is for 99% of football, I think, that you get that kind of environment. And yeah, I just think that on this topic, it, Rotherham is probably the probably the best in, in England that, that speaking about. The gaffer is just massive on it. I can't say how much he, he's obsessive with it almost he, um, yeah he's just he I can't, I can't even explain it he's just he's just so good at it that's just what he's good at and what he wants players he wants players to connect on a personal level not just right it's football you come in you come in to work it's not it's not about that thing it's about creating bonds and, and friendships on, on and off the pitch has that been tested slightly over the past few years with the obviously the coronavirus situation and the protocols that have been in place? Um, is he sort of you know adapted? Is it been so important when these adapted things to, to ensure that that connection is still in place? Yeah, I think he just adapted it. Um, obviously, everything's more tested at this moment in time, but um, where there's a problem, there's a solution. So he's man- managed to find the solutions. I think. Wait and see. <laughs> Um, that's just a, a nice segue there because I wanted to sort of cover the uh, the topic of coronavirus and football and, and how the experience has been for you. Um, so I, I'm going to say I'm going to say some positive things about you again, which I'm sure you <laughs> I'm sure you love. <laughs> uh, so last few last year, you've got promoted. You've won yep. a championship player of the month, which, uh, mm. with all due respects, a, a club that are at the bottom half bottom half of the league is a very very rare thing to do. Um, mm-hmm. And even as recently as last week, you've been involved in a massive game and got the ninety-seven. Not yourself, but Rotherham scored a goal in the ninety-seventh minute. I saw that you assisted that. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you've, you've had some really positive moments in your career over the past twelve months, but there's not been fans there to see it. There's not been the same the same atmosphere that you might have expected to have. I mean, um, does it feel like some of the sort of um, is it? <laughs> 
obviously we're not taking anything away from the, the situation in general here. We're just sort of, you know, not saying that football is more important than anything else. And so there should be, you know, it's some sense of unfairness, <laughs> but like, does it feel, is there a tiny little bit of, you know, disappointment that some of the highest points of your career have been tainted a little bit? Yeah, I think so. I think coronavirus has taken away so much from so many people in so many different ways. And obviously we're fortunate enough to play football, but it is not the same without fans. It's for the first six to seven weeks, I absolutely hated it. I just couldn't get my head around it. And, um, I don't know whether that's an excuse for my performances, but um, <laughs> I, I just really, it was just like reserve games and it was rubbish. I mean, it still is now, but I've kind of got my head around it. Um, but literally the first thing you said when we came in after the Sheffield Wednesday game, 97-minute winner, how good would that have been with fans? Like the moment itself was, it was still really, really good. And you have that moment of euphoria, but like I, I can picture myself celebrating now at the time. And I kind of like ran down the other side of where we scored because I was like over this side. And it would have been full of home Sheffield Wednesday fans. And I know I'd just been getting like a barrage of abuse and like people shouting, but I'd have just been loving it. And you just to not have that, it just it does like I say it takes that, that feeling away. And it is it'd have been so much better, but like you say, there's bigger things going on at the minute in the world and we have to deal with it and we're fortunate enough to be out playing and being able to do the thing that we love. So we are fortunate in that respect. But yeah, it's like I say, it is there is these moments that I haven't like promotion not being able to celebrate and I missed out on the PFA dinner because I got in the League 2 team of the year um, back when I was at Accrington and I had one of the best nights of my life after that um, in London I was looking forward to the League 1 team of the year because I got in it there last year and it was in Manchester this time so me and Mrs were looking forward to that but <laughs> obviously that got that got scrapped as well so <laughs> I missed out on loads of stuff um, but no, yeah it's it is what it is. We've just got to, got to get on with it and hopefully it'll, it'll pass and normality will resume as soon as possible. Yeah, and of course, there's, in this discussion, there's no sort of indicating you're not, you're not, well, not downplaying anything. We're just sort of... No, of this, course. Yeah, the, yeah. this situation. Um, but, I mean, there obviously was a time where you weren't playing um, in the, the first lockdown. Uh, it, mm-hmm. Given that you were in, in League One, it was for a longer period than quite a lot of people I have spoken to for playing at championship clubs. Um, yeah. so how difficult was it to keep yourself focused and motivated during that period when I mean, you were obviously I'd imagine you were still trying to keep yourself fit and, and working yeah. towards a potential comeback but not actually having a deadline or a date in mind and it just seemed to be you know doing it for the sake of doing it trying to keep fit for the sake of keeping fit and not yeah. really knowing what on earth was going on how, how challenging was that? It was just felt never ending. There wasn't much information or communication coming from the AFL either. So it was, it'd be just going off rumours. You'd hear one day that the season was starting and then it wasn't starting. But like you say, we had to keep ourselves fit every day. And then I think about six weeks prior to us actually finding out that we'd been promoted, we got told that week we were getting promoted, like on privately, like we thought we were. And then, so we were all like, really excited because we thought oh we can have like a little break now because the season's going to finish and then like two days later they said oh no it's changed like you're going to have to keep running because you don't know if you're going to be back in it was just 5k's 2k's 3k's every day I mean I complain about it I mean I did one today because obviously we're back in isolation again due to the outbreak at Rotherham but kind of got me through got me through it in the end because it was just something to do and it kind of gave me 
uh, structure in my day. So I'll go for my run in the morning, I'll have my breakfast and I'll go in my makeshift gym in the garage and then I've got the rest of the day with my family and it was just kind of, I mean, it was so repetitive, but it was just kind of keeping me going. Yeah, I mean, everyone found it tough. Luckily enough, the weather was nice, so we had a few nice barbecues, but I mean, it was, I hope it never happens again, put it that way. Yeah, of course. <laughs> <laughs> um, but in that time, but yeah, particularly in that time before in the first lockdown, full football resumed, and in the sort of the period just after that, there was quite a lot of pressure and focus on football. Um, so a very prominent government figure was quite negative towards footballers, and uh, Mr. Hancock. Yeah, indeed, mm. you said his name yeah. good. <laughs> yeah. um, but the the odd sort of discrepancy of a footballer was was very much sort of highlighted, and there was a lot of negative things said, a lot of pressure put on put on players in general. Did any of that get to you? Did it frustrate you? Was it sort of yeah frustrating to be tarnished under the same brush? And was it frustrating that there's sort of there was this perception being put put across that you as footballers had a had a duty to do more and you weren't doing enough? Yeah, I'm not obviously condoning any of the actions that got brought up and were publicised by the media. Yeah, I know there's a few instances of, of rule breaking etc. But I think at the same time, people forget that these footballers are just normal people like ourselves. They are prone to make mistakes and they can't be perfect 100% of the time. We know the role models to a lot of young, young kids out there, but a lot of the time, a lot of them are young kids themselves still. So I kind of felt a bit sympathy for them, really. I mean, like I said, I don't condone what they did because they were breaking the law at the end of the day, but I think sometimes people have to realise that we all make mistakes and sometimes just forgiven and, and forget about it with the whole not doing enough it was just it was baffling to me honestly baffling I don't really know where it comes from I mean he's not covered himself in glory ever since then I mean he's, he's kind of <laughs> to say he was covering up footballers and then he's kind of dealt with coronavirus the worst out of the whole entire world um, it's just such a strange perception to have of like you can understand sort of I don't know like a child having the perception of a footballer being this this figure that you know has got all the money in the world and can solve every problem and they're all they're selfish and you know you can yeah. understand someone that's immature it's maybe not yeah I think immature is better word than a child having that sort of yeah. you know very tunnel vision about what a footballer is but someone who's mm. in a quite a prompt position sort of perceiving footballers as being subhuman and not you know doing just needing to do more than they actually were capable of doing it is just very, very bizarre. And I found that, that that really frustrated me. Yeah, I think you just play up to the media. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's one of those things. I think f- football, especially in the Premier League, they've done more than enough over this period. Uh, the work that they've put in has been, been fantastic and the money they've raised and wages that they've given away to, to people that deserve it and to charities that need it, um, by the way. But I think they've definitely done more than enough to be kind of left alone, left alone yeah. for five minutes and and just let them entertain people although some of the games have been a bit drab recently <laughs> yeah no it, it, you're right there and I think it's 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 just for someone who has a an interesting perspective of footballers in that I talk to them in this sort of way where I talk about their emotions and their feelings and see that there is there is more to footballers than they are just a footballer. They are a human being. It is frustrating for mm. me to see them cast in a very different light, which is the wrong way when they, and then they go out of their way to do things. And there's a little bit of kind of, 
oh well they're only doing that for their image sort of sort of yeah you can't win you can't win yeah uh but i just wanted to wrap up our conversation matt by asking the question i mean I think your answer might be to have more more, more poor walls around the place. But uh, what more do you think football could do to uh, support mental health and well-being of all those that are involved in the game? Well, I think the most important thing I think we spoke about is communication. I think the more you talk, the more it's going to help. Some people might not listen and, and a lot of people might not listen. But if you get one or two that do, then you've, you've helped more than you did previously. So I think talking about it is massive. Social media is big now. Obviously, we, we know all about that. And, the effects of that can have. It's difficult to, to regulate. I don't know how they're going to do it, but some sort of regulation on that front, I think, would be would be huge. Um, when, when or if that would come, I'm not sure. And I think feeding information to the younger kids as well, because at the end of the day, like we've said, I had that tunnel vision to become a footballer and probably a lot of them do. And when they're not lucky enough to make it in the game, where do they, where do they go next? And I think, to be fair, the clubs and the PFA are, are doing projects and are starting to to build bridges on that on that front, but still a lot of work to be done and I think you can always improve and we've got to strive to do that. I think everything you said there is actually there are things that have been said plenty of times before, things that I've said plenty of times before, and they're all things that are are, are achievable. Uh, and I think that, mm-hmm. that actually the main thing you said as, as you said at the start is about communication, is just getting a message across that it's okay to talk about these things. And then the things like social media. Um, the things like ensuring that young players have got a different vision about things they'll change because you get a bit more freedom yeah. you get a bit more willingness to be open up about emotional things and not think that you need to be tight in how you feel and stuff so yeah I think that, that as you said the starting point is communication and then we work from there Matt it's been absolutely fantastic to talk to you thank you for being so open and honest and talking about some, some difficult difficult topics um, been an absolute pleasure thank you for giving up your time and uh, good luck for the rest of the season Thank you. Pleasure to be mine. To hear someone say they are proud to have epilepsy was a very powerful thing to me. To hear it from someone I've looked up to, well, it meant a hell of a lot. For Matt, someone I've never spoken to before, to be so open not just about epilepsy, but his special relationship with Jordan Sinnott and all he has done since was incredible. Tears were cleared away during our conversation. Matt is a truly incredible man. Thank you so much for listening. More than any other episode, It means a lot to me that you've listened to this one. If you're new here, follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram at WellBallingPod. Follow me on Twitter and Instagram at K underscore Andrews Photos. And most importantly of all, keep well, keep safe and keep talking about mental health.